Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Dirt Radio. Organic. Friends of the Earth. Activism. Underground. Political action. Necessary. Wind farms. Indigenous struggles. Land rights. Anti-nuclear. Nanotechnology. Climate change. Coal barons. Mining magnates. Activists. Educating. Communities. Transforming. Communities. Mobilising a sustainable planet. Get involved now. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Friends of the Earth. Dirt Radio. Dirt Radio, that's us. Good morning. John Langer here, and we're sponsored, of course, by Friends of the Earth. Check them out at foe.org.au. What have religion and spirituality got to do with climate change? Well, Patrick Nunn thinks there's a lot that connects them together. And we climate campaigners and environmental activists need to think more deeply about that connection, especially in non-Western cultural context. Patrick Nunn is Professor of Geography at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and he's been doing extensive research on community values and the impacts of climate change all through Pacific Islands. I spoke to him last week. Just just as a, a beginning, you attended a church service in a village in Fiji earlier in the year, and something happened that you thought climate change activists and organizations should be paying attention to? Yes, I, I was, uh, whenever I stay with uh, communities in the Pacific, of course, I go to church on Sundays because uh, most people in those communities go to church on Sundays. And um, this particular one was very memorable. Um, I speak Fijian, I understand Fijian, so I, I was able to understand the, the homily to some extent. And the preacher was standing up there and uh, he was berating the, converse, uh, the congregation in the way that um, preachers in Christian churches in the Pacific often do berate their congregations. Um, and, and he was saying, you know, it's because um, we, are, we are pious people, it's because we are God-fearing people in this community that Cyclone Winston, Tropical Cyclone Winston in February 2016, um, it didn't come near us. Um, we were shielded from Cyclone Winston because God was protecting us, because God acknowledges um, that we are, we are God-fearing people and we need to continue to to be like this uh, in order um, that you know, future uh, climatic-related disasters don't affect us. And the, the most poignant part of his homily was when he put out his arm, um, you know, as, as though um, putting a protective arm around the community, he put it out in front of him, and he said, you know, this is the arm of God. Um, we were protected from this dreadful cyclone, the, the strongest ever recorded in the Southern Hemisphere. We were protected from that, uh, uh, that strong storm, but the people down there were not. Um, and why were we protected? We were protected because um, we are we are God fearing. And um, just coming out of that uh, out of that service and talking to people afterwards, and you know there was a lot of um, agreement with with the sentiment that he expressed there. And uh, I don't think I've ever heard that kind of expression uh, expressed so so forcefully, um, so clearly. Um, in all my years in the Pacific Islands. And your argument, as I understand, is the Pacific Islands are very much connected to spirituality, and spirituality plays a very important role in addressing climate change and climate change adaptation and disaster risk management. Could you 
explain, give, give us a sense of the centrality of religion in ordinary people's lives. You did a survey. Yes, that's right. Um, I, I've, I, I lived in the Pacific uh, Islands in Fiji. I lived there for 25 years. Um, you know, you, you know this kind of thing very well when you actually live there. Um, but we did a survey um, of um, more than 1,200 students at the University of the South Pacific, which is an international university. Um, you know, 99.9% of the students there are Pacific Island students. Um, and we did a survey of these students. We found that even at university, more than 80% of them uh, attended church at least once a week. Um, 35% of them, students, uh, attended church more than once a week. Um, and, you know, bear in mind, these are university students. You know, these are people mm-hmm. away from home. They're, they're off the sort of parental leash. Uh, um, they're, they're often uh, off having fun and things like that. But still, um, you know, more than 80%, 81% of them are going to church at least once a week. So spirituality is very much um, ingrained in the culture. And, you know, these are the people who will lead the Pacific Islands, the, the tertiary-educated students, you know, in 20 or 30 years' time. So um, I think spirituality is very evident amongst the principal decision-makers uh, in the Pacific Islands, and as, of course, it is amongst communities. The other thing that I thought was interesting in, in relation to your survey, the student survey, it revealed what, what you called or what's been called connectedness to nature, and you are arguing that Pacific Islanders are very different in that sense from first world or richer countries. When, when I talk about spirituality, I'm deliberately throwing the net wider than just religiosity, which is what I've been talking about with you uh, up until now. So I think spirituality really extends religious beliefs into um, connectedness with nature, um, into, into things like that. So we asked as part of our survey, we asked students at the University of the South Pacific, you know, how connected they, they felt to nature. I mean, obviously, we didn't ask them that question. We asked a whole series of questions by which we could measure that. And, and certainly, yes, we, we found that um, the strength of the declared connection to nature was very, very much greater than you find in, in first world uh, countries. How do you define connectedness to nature in terms of the, what you were investigating? We asked, we asked these, uh, the, the students about the environment as provider. We asked these uh, students about uh, environment as something that could be damaged, uh, would therefore no longer provide. We asked these students about um, their culture's dependency on nature, uh, all, all these sorts of things to really try and gauge um, how close they felt uh, or how connected they felt to, to nature. And But I think the whole point here, John, is that a, a high degree of connectedness to nature also informs the way that outside agencies should approach uh, cultural groups like those in the Pacific Islands if, if they are trying to bring about behavior change. Because if you, if you treat, as we do in most Western cultures, if we treat sort of humanity and nature as two separate things rather than as a, a single thing, which is the way it, that it happens in, uh, in other cultures, including those in the Pacific Islands, then it's very difficult to, no, it's not very difficult, it's perhaps a bit naive then to expect, um, to expect interventions um, for things like climate change adaptation to be successful. So I would argue that um, agencies like Australian aid, um, you know, 
and, and all the mm. other big aid donors in the Pacific, they have been pouring money into the Pacific Islands for 30 years now in the name of climate change adaptation. And I would say that um, probably about 95% of those have failed. Um, those interventions have failed failed to be either effective or to be sustainable. They're not, they're not going on at the moment. I wanted to ask something else, and this is about the Pacific Conference of Churches, which probably most people listening would not have heard of. They did some very interesting initiatives. Who are they, and what were the initiatives? So the Pacific Conference of Churches is an ecumenical uh, Christian organization. Every Christian church represented in the Pacific Islands um, I believe is a member of the Pacific Conference of Churches, and they have a they have an annual conference and things like that, and they come together, and they're trying to take ecumenical or Christian positions on particular issues in the Pacific Islands, including climate change. So I think it was in 2007 or 2008 they had a conference, um, and they came together, and. You had people from different denominations, Christian denominations. You had people from different island countries. And they came together and they framed what they called the Moana Declaration on Climate Change. And one of the things that was distinctive about that in 2007 um, was its emphasis on relocation. The the idea of, of moving a community or a village from a vulnerable location, a place where it's vulnerable, sea level rise, for example, to a place where it's less vulnerable, um, that has really been a topic for non-discussion in the Pacific Mm -hmm. for for ages. Um, uh, People don't want to talk about having to move. They believe that they're living on land that their ancestors have occupied for thousands of years. They have a cultural attachment to the land, which is far more than simply monetary. Um, So uh, the fact that the Pacific Conference of Churches stood up and said, look, we've got to talk relocation, um, given the the projections of future sea level rise in this area. I, I think that represented a, a turning point, um, if you like, in the, the history of the, the Pacific. And, and sorry, John, if I could just make one mm. um, supplementary point there. The, the, the fact that the churches are saying this, rather than the governments, is hugely important, because in most of the Pacific, in most Pacific communities, whether they're urban or peri-urban or rural, um, the church or the words of the church have far, far more influence with people than do the words of the government or the words of scientists mm. or anything like that. So, um, you know, the fact that the church stood up and said this um, and was telling its ministers to go out into the communities and, and say this kind of thing, I think, um, was a, a turning point Finally, uh, your view, and uh, you've stated it during our discussion, is secular organizations communicating about climate change are using a very secular language when they come to the Pacific Islands to confront the looming crisis. And basically you're saying it's, that's not going to cut it. What should be happening at this point? Well, it's certainly not cutting it at the moment. And I think, um, you know, even sort of... 20 years ago, we could afford a few, uh, a few errors, but I think now the, the pace of climate change in the Pacific Islands is accelerating, and I think the importance of getting it right now is, is massive, um, because I think in the next 10 years we're going to see huge uh, disruption to societies in the Pacific and, of course, elsewhere in the world. So it, it's very important to get it right. I think religious organizations in the Pacific are key, 
um, I think they need to be engaged far more effectively um, by donors, by people with money who are trying to bring about this climate change adaptation um, than they have been to date. Uh, I think, and you know, this is this is something that you know anyone who's worked in foreign affairs in Australia will will ridicule me for saying, but I think um, we've seen that money given to Pacific Island governments for climate change adaptation very rarely filters down to the people most affected by it. Um, mm. And I'm not saying there's corruption. I'm not saying you know things are, are diverted to places where they shouldn't be. But um, it simply isn't bringing around. Are bringing about the the kinds of changes that we need to see. So, I think there needs to be a new approach by aid donors um, in the Pacific Islands and elsewhere in the world. I think they need to ask some really, really solid questions about you know why things are not happening as they expected them to happen, um, and engage with new partners and and to recognise the organisations and the people of influence. Um, in places like the Pacific Islands, and and have them as as partners, but more than that, I think John, they simply have to understand that this is not a secular issue, even though it appears to be a secular mm-hmm. issue to people in Australia and to other so-called first world countries. Um, in the Pacific, it's not. Um, in the Pacific, when I go into a community in Fiji and I sit and I talk to them about climate change adaptation. Um, they will sit and they'll listen and then they'll discuss it and, you know, God will come up. What, mm. what, what is God thinking? What, what does he want us to do? Um, what does, uh, you know, how do we reconcile what is happening with our spiritual beliefs? Where does it say in the Bible um, that this, this is happening and this mm. is what we should do? Mm. So I think if aid donors don't, uh, don't engage with those kinds of beliefs, we're going to see more problems or more failure in the future. That was Patrick Nunn. He's Professor of Geography at the University of the Sunshine Coast, and he works in the Australian Centre for Pacific Island Research and also in the Sustainability Research Centre. Some very interesting comments there. We're Dirt Radio. The Independent and Peaceful Australia Network presents War, Peace and Independence. Keep Australia out of US wars. Amidst an escalating threat of another major war breaking out, this timely conference will be held in Melbourne from the 8th to the 10th of September. The conference will address the struggle against US bases, drone warfare, peace as union business, US political and military influence and much more. For details and bookings, head to ipan.org.au or go to the Independent and Peaceful Australia Network's Facebook page, a 3CR supporter. You're with Third Radio, and this week, religion, spirituality, and taking action on climate change. Jonathan Karen Black knows all about this. He's a rabbi at the Leo Beck Center for Progressive Judaism, and he's a longtime climate campaigner. And as you'll hear in this pre-recorded conversation, he's someone who's actually prepared to get out there on the street and get the message out about climate change and onto as many political agendas as possible. Uh, Rabbi Jonathan, you belong to an organization called ARC. It's the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. Briefly tell us about ARC and what it does. Okay, so ARC has taken the motif um, of the, obviously, of Noah's Ark, um, although 
It stands for Australian Religious Response to Climate Change, ARRRC.org.au, if you want to look it up. Um, but it has that image of surviving the flood and the deluge. Um, obviously, that, that's a, it's alluding to climate change and the crises that we're facing. It's trying to bring people together of all sorts of different faiths. And um, we believe that all people of faith, all religions, have this idea that we should look after the world, whether God asks us to or whether it's a moral obligation. Basically, the idea of passing the world on in good condition to those who come after us, which, of course, we'd recognize today as sustainability. Now, a few weeks ago, ARC held an anti-Carmichael mine rally at Josh Frydenberg's office. What we were doing was actually a funerals for coal. Um, the argument that um, many of your listeners will be familiar with is um, from 350.org, that basically most of the coal and fossil fuel reserves that we already know about around the world have to be left in the ground. They simply can't be burnt because otherwise we'll zoom past the what's now agreed to be hopefully safe 1.5 degrees of warming on average. So we're very strongly opposed to the Adani um, reef rate King Megamine, mm. uh, we call it, to get all those information. is It's a megamine because the Adani Carmichael coal mine um, is going to be large. It'll be the largest coal mine in Australia. Hasn't mm. you know? It's mm. pristine indigenous land now, uh, with many sacred places across it, and it's just simply going to be bulldozed and uh, mined, mm. um, and it'll become the largest coal mine in Australia. We can't let that go ahead. It's completely irresponsible for Australia and for the world. We held these funerals for coal every hour on the hour between 10 o'clock and uh, when the minister agreed to meet with us at 4 o'clock. You did have this meeting and uh, a week later and uh, tell us a little bit about what happened in that meeting. Well yes we did have um, six faith leaders, Christians, Catholics, Jews, um, Buddhists amongst us, and basically the minister gave us 40 minutes and listened to what we had to say. He, you know, he started off by telling us what a great job the government's doing and how committed they are to the Paris goals, but he didn't seem to want to acknowledge the contradiction between that and developing uh, the Adani reef wrecking megamine, which will have, by the way, 500 ships a year going through the reef and of course we know that the reef is being severely damaged already by the the this year and mm. last year major coral bleaching events um from which it's not going to be able to recover in large part um and you know the, the reef is well if you look at it in tourism terms 65,000 people are employed in the tourism tourism industry in Queensland um largely around and to do with the reef Mm. or many of them, and, um, and the Adani's own figures say that about 1,500, 1,457, I think, people are going to be employed by the mine. So even if 5% of the people in tourism lose their jobs over time because of the damage done by this mine and the shipping, that will be more than the number of jobs that are going to be created. So when the minister tells us that, uh, you know, this is a complex issue and there are employment issues involved and there's raising money for the country. Mm-hmm. What they're really saying, to cut through what he's saying, what they're really saying is we've got to sell this coal, an asset that Australia owns, before 
it becomes a stranded asset, which means something that nobody wants to buy. Did you think when you were in the meeting with him, do you think, look, this is a, a rather subjective thing, but do you think he was just, uh, you know, producing rhetoric? Do you think, you know, maybe he didn't really believe what he was saying? He's, I mean, he is an intelligent man. He's a very intelligent guy. And my feeling is that he and his predecessor, Greg Hunt, understand the science and the urgency. It's just that they are having such difficulty with many others in the Liberal and the National Party. Some months ago, you might recall, actually, Frydenberg said, we need, effectively, a carbon charge, a price on carbon. Mm-hmm. And he was squashed the same day by Barnaby Joyce and the next day by Malcolm Turnbull, mm. um, who's obviously desperate to hold on to his very narrow um, balance um, or majority. I actually got the feeling, you know, he got the impression after 40 minutes with us that he was talking to people who knew what they're talking about, who have the facts and figures and do <laughs> understand it. Um, yes. and, um, mm-hmm. and that there are such powerful moral mm-hmm. issues here. Mm-hmm. So, for example, that day, there'd just been a report that we need 77 more climate scientists in Australia. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we'll look into that. I don't know whether we need 77 or not, but we have 460 or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And we have this special new unit that we set up in Hobart. And I said to him, so, Minister, what do you think they would say if you asked our 400-plus climate specialists, should we be building the Adani mine? <laughs> and he paused, which is unusual, really, for a minister, you know. <laughs> and he said, well, we don't employ them to advise on overseas emissions. Their job is to advise on Australian emissions. Mm -hmm. You know, it just shows that it's such a ridiculous situation. I said to him also, you minister, you're the minister for the federal minister for the environment. You're looking after Australia and our emissions and our environment. But who is the Australian representative who stands up for the world's environment? You know, because selling just because you think we're going to meet our Paris Uh, agreements, which I think is questionable because the baseline is very low. But just because we're going to meet the Paris agreements, what about the rest of the world and the emissions that we are responsible for by selling this coal to India? And he said, well, uh, it's better than selling poorer quality coal or them burning dung. (laughs) Um, which is really uh, sidestepping the issue because the Indian government already knows that and is doing a great deal in terms of solar Mm. and uh, renewable power. The problem with India is actually that the grid is too expensive to extend to poor, impoverished areas, and it's much better to have decentralized renewables. Mm. Um, And the Indian government knows that and is doing it and wants to do it. It doesn't need this coal. Now, finally, I just wanted to ask you about your own practice as a rabbi at the synagogue during your weekly sermons. Do you talk about climate change with the congregation, and how well is that received with the congregation? I do talk about it quite frequently, and um, one of the colleagues uh, that was in the uh, meeting with Frydenberg with me is Reverend Alex Sangster, and she and I, you know, uh, come. Uh, comment on this quite frequently because she feels if she makes another comment about it, she's going to be thrown out of her job. Um, Certainly, we use the opportunity to try and educate, but I do more than talking about it. Um, uh, I also drive a a plug-in hybrid car, and um, I've been, you know, had hybrid vehicles since I arrived in the congregation 15 years ago, and from time to time, somebody will come and say, Rabbi, look what I've got in the car park. 
And we have a very high proportion of hybrids, which, of mm. course, use a third less energy than uh, regular uh, mm. vehicles. Mm. But, um, but I'm now on a plug-in hybrid, so I don't use any petrol at all most of the time. Uh, all of our toilets are flushed by water from the roof, mm. and the gardens mm. are, uh, are run like that. But really, um, this is important. What we do individually is important, but what we do politically is crucial. Um, and we have to get out there and demonstrate and get the government to change its mind. And uh, we have to get the banks to to stop funding or offering to fund. Uh, it's great mm. news about the Commonwealth. Uh, I was there demonstrating against Westpac last last year before it uh, reversed its decision, made a very strong statement against Adani. And most of us have money in superannuation. We don't think of as our money, but of course it is. And the superannuation funds are huge investors in whatever they think is going to make a profit. But they're increasingly realizing that coal and fossil fuels are risky and they may not make the profit they're anticipating. Uh, I should say, to draw to a conclusion, that the Jewish people are known as Israel. Um, Israel is most recently, of course, the state, but really much more through Jewish history, we've said Shema Yisrael, which translates as listen up, you Jews, right? That, that's what Israel means. And Israel means struggling with God, which I interpret to mean struggling to make right decisions mm. um, for ourselves and for the future. And this is very clear-cut one. Bishop Philip Huggins was at the meeting as well. He said to the minister, Minister, Australia's got such a reputation over the years for leading the way. We're the ones who introduced compulsory seatbelt wearing around the world. Um, we've done the plain paper packaging. We are so affluent, relatively speaking. Why don't we set the lead in stopping all mining, mm. new mines? Mm -hmm. mm. And that's, you know, that's the obvious thing we should be doing. We need to bear in mind that people need employment. We've got to transition. People have got to have proper plans. But we do not need to be burning coal and gas and oil. We've got so much sun falling on this country. I saw a figure yesterday that said a year's worth of energy falls on the globe in 90 minutes. We have the answer in our hands. We just don't have the will politically. And it's us ordinary voters, people of religion and people of faith and others who can make this happen. And we have to for the sake of the future. That was Rabbi Jonathan Karen Black, and he's from the Leo Beck Center for Progressive Judaism. He's a climate campaigner and an active member of ARC, the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change. We've been Dirt Radio. I'm John Langer.